Thanks, Chris. Morning, everyone. How are you guys doing this morning? Glad to see you all here this morning. Let's go ahead and open up your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. This morning in first service, I'm not used to this podium, and I was going through my notes, and I went to the next page, and I was like, uh, shoot, how am I going to do this? So I got it figured out. Um, but yeah, go ahead and start making your way to Habakkuk chapter 2. It's a small book uh, toward the end of the Old Testament, uh, and it's in the section known as the Minor Prophets. And Minor Prophets are not less important prophets, they're just smaller books, so they're called Minor Prophets as opposed to Major Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So Habakkuk chapter 2, right after the books of Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you and use that. And if you want to take it home with you, you can do that as well. That's why we have them there. So we're continuing our series through this book of Habakkuk, uh, which we titled From Worry to Worship. And as we've seen through chapter 1 so far, Habakkuk is a prophet for Israel during the time when they are about to be conquered by the nation of Babylon. And chapter 1 begins right off the bat with Habakkuk um, praying to God and asking this question, How long, Lord? How long must I cry out about the violence and perversion of justice that is before me? We're immediately thrown into this terrible situation that Habakkuk is living in. For the nation of Israel has turned far, far away from God. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 14 describes it as this. All the leaders of the priests and the people multiplied their unfaithful deeds, imitating all the detestable practices of the nations, and they defiled the Lord's temple that he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Habakkuk is worried, wondering where God is in the midst of his people's rebellion and their wickedness. Why is God so seemingly absent and unresponsive to such wickedness. God breaks the silence and responds to Habakkuk, look and observe, be utterly astounded. I am doing something in your days that you won't believe when you hear it. I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, this fierce, terrifying, bitter, and impetuous nation that mocks kings, laughs at every fortress, and sweeps through the nations like wind. And they are coming to you, Habakkuk. They are coming because God's compassion and his patience has been ridiculed and scoffed at. Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 through 17 say, But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them, against Israel, by the hand of his messengers, the prophets, sending them time and time again, for he, God, had had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets, until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. God's answer to Habakkuk's concern and worry is using the nation of Babylon as a means of judgment against Israel. And then further on in chapter 1, we see that Habakkuk prays to God a second time. In light of what God just revealed to him, 
And we see Habakkuk is now worried about how God is choosing to execute judgment in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1. He says, Why do you tolerate those who are treacherous, these Babylonians? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up the one who is more righteous than himself? These Babylonians were even worse than the Israelites. These Babylonians, they pull up mankind like fish of the sea. They catch them in their dragnet, and they gather them in their fishing net. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy, God? Habakkuk is now worried as to why God is allowing this brutal judgment to come through the Babylonians. Like, God, whoa, slow down. And as Brandon preached on this last week, we, see, we saw in Romans 1 that this is the consequence of exchanging the glory of God for idols and exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Israel has become just like the other nations around them, worshiping false gods and mocking and ridiculing God's glory and truth. They have reversed the created order. They now worship the creature or the creation rather than the creator himself. They no longer worship God or follow his truth. Thus, God hands them over to their corrupt and sinful passions. He says, you know what? You get what you want. Meaning they're just like the other nations around them. And ultimately, they're going to be conquered by the Babylonians, just like the other nations around them. So Habakkuk asks the question at the end of his second prayer, will they, will these Babylonians continually slaughter nations without mercy, God? Is there any hope for God's people who have kept faith in him? Will this oppression go on forever? Is there any judgment that will come upon the wicked Babylonians? This brings us to our portion of scripture for today, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into God's response to Habakkuk. Father, we are grateful that we can come together this morning, that we can sing praises to you, that we can worship you, that we can open up your word and just find, find out more about who you are and who we are in light of your truth. God, I pray that as we're going through your word today that you can just be revealing our hearts, revealing where we are not trusting in you, where we are lacking in faith, God. Father, I pray that you can show us how great and marvelous and wonderful you are. May your word just conform us more and more into the image of your Son. I pray this all in your name. Amen. So let's read Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Habakkuk says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated, he is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. 
He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. So after Habakkuk finishes his second round of questioning, he assumes the position of a watchman on a lookout tower. He waits to see what God's response is to his worry and questioning. Habakkuk doesn't try to use human wisdom to make sense of the situation before him, because it just doesn't make sense. Instead, he waits for the Lord to respond and provide insight and, to, and wisdom to address his concerns. And in using this language of stationing himself in the lookout tower, Habakkuk also understands his responsibility to serve as a messenger to the Israelites. The one who's stationed in the lookout tower would communicate to the city what lies ahead. And so Habakkuk, assuming this position, is awaiting to hear from the Lord and communicate his response to the people. Now, all of Habakkuk's questioning and concerns about God's decisions, they could have been addressed by God in a harsh or rebuking manner. But as we come to verse 2 in chapter 2, we see that God responds gently to him by giving him a vision to write down. This takes us to our first point, the magnitude of the vision. The magnitude of the vision. <clears throat> Habakkuk 2, verse 2 says, The Lord answered me, Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets, so one may easily read it. Now, at first glance, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on here. God's just saying, hey, Habakkuk, write this stuff down on some tablets so it's easy to read, right? But if you take a second and slow down to see the bigger picture, you may notice some specific language is being used here. God tells Habakkuk to specifically write this vision on tablets. Other prophets were told to write things down on scrolls and whatnot, but God makes it clear, Habakkuk, write this down on tablets. Where else do we see the word tablets pop up in the Old Testament? Moses received in the covenant in Mount Sinai, right? Exodus 24, 12 states, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay there, so that I may give you the stone tablets with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. The fact that such a short vision in verses 4 and 5 here in Habakkuk would require more than one tablet begs the question why God would use the plural word for tablets unless he was trying to clue Habakkuk in on something. This language is intended to call to mind the tablets of the covenant made at Sinai, but why? Why is it such a big deal to be thinking of Moses receiving the law on tablets in this passage with Habakkuk? Because in response to all of Habakkuk's questioning and worry, in response to the fear of what lies ahead, as Habakkuk is waiting as a lookout, God responds with a vision so important, with such great magnitude, that it is on the same level as the receiving of the original law through Moses. God's response to Habakkuk's second prayer is this. Habakkuk, you need to write this down. What I am about to reveal to you, this vision that I am about to show you, is as big as when Moses received the Ten Commandments and the 603 other laws that followed. What I am about to reveal to you is as significant as the original tablets of the law that I gave to Moses. 
So this is obviously a big deal. God is making it clear to Habakkuk how great the magnitude of this vision is. And because it's so great, Habakkuk is to clearly inscribe it so that one may easily read it. Some other translations say, one who reads it may run. Either way your translation puts it, the emphasis is on the fact that someone may easily read these tablets in the future and take that message with them. This grand vision that God is giving Habakkuk to inscribe on tablets is not just for himself, but for those of future generations that will come after him. This takes us to our second point. The nature of the vision brings peace and assurance. The nature of the vision brings peace and assurance. Habakkuk 2 verse 3 says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. God tells Habakkuk that this vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. God's vision to Habakkuk doesn't focus primarily on Habakkuk's current circumstances, but extends actually far beyond that to the appointed time, as it says in verse 3. It testifies about the end. We see that the nature of this vision is first eschatological, which is the big theological word, uh, meaning God's appointed time, when the end time comes, final judgment. God's response to Habakkuk's questions and worrying is not a simple matter of what will happen in Habakkuk's lifetime, but one that points to God's bigger plan of judgment for humanity. God doesn't tell Habakkuk what is to come in the following days or years, once Israel's conquered and taken into exile. God doesn't lay out the step-by-step, day-by-day plans of his judgment for Israel and what's going to happen to Babylon. Instead, God gives Habakkuk the opportunity to see the bigger picture and to trust in him as his faithful God. And not only is this bigger picture for Habakkuk, but it's also for all the coming generations to read and to remember. So we see why Habakkuk is instructed to write down this vision. Because it is yet to come about, and it will serve as an answer to those in the future, future who are in despair, just as Habakkuk is currently. God continues on in verse 3, and encourages Habakkuk that even though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. In this second part of verse 3, we see the second aspect of the nature of this vision. It is certain. God provides hope to Habakkuk that even though, in Habakkuk's limited perspective, God's plan seems delayed or behind schedule, Habakkuk's asking, asking the question, will they continually slaughter nations without mercy, God? Is there an end to this, Lord? Even though God seems slow to act, God says, wait for it. Since in God's sovereignty and timing, it will most certainly come and not be late. And we can all relate. We all feel that God is slow to act in certain areas of our lives, whether it's suffering through something or it's lacking something that we want or that we need. We've all been there. But from God's perspective, it will certainly come, and it will not be late. It will come at the perfect time, according to God's plan and his purposes. So for both Habakkuk and the generations to come, they can trust God 
that this vision will come about and that it is certain. So Habakkuk, in the midst of forthcoming devastation and exile, is instructed to write down this vision that is on the same level as Moses receiving the law. It is both eschatological and certain, meaning there is a future time when God's judgment will come. But what is the vision? What is this message that Habakkuk can pass on to his people as he stands guard in the lookout tower? This takes us to the third point. The substance of the vision brings life. The substance of the vision brings life. Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 say, Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. So we now come to the vision that God gives to Habakkuk. The vision compares one with an inflated ego to one who will live by his faith. The one with the inflated ego, the one who thinks of himself more highly than he ought to, the one who is prideful, is actually without integrity. Or another way of putting it, he is not upright or righteous. But there is one who is righteous, and it is the one who will live by their faith. Here we see the vision that Habakkuk is to clearly write onto to the tablets. The vision that is on the same level as Moses receiving the law at Sinai. The vision that is to bring hope and assurance to Habakkuk and others in the midst of devastation. The righteous one will live by his faith. God sums up his 613 laws into just one for Habakkuk to write down and pass on for the generations to come. Live by faith, and you will be considered righteous and live. In the Old Testament, there's a progression scene of summarizing the law into fewer and fewer points. In Psalm 15, they boil it down to about 10 points. In Micah 6, 8, it's boiled down to three points, to act justly, to love faithfulness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In Isaiah 56, 1, it gets down to two points, preserve justice and do what is right. But here in Habakkuk's vision, we see God summarize all his law for being righteous into one statement. The righteous one will live by his faith. Here it is, Habakkuk. Even when all seems lost, even when the Babylonians come crushing, crashing through the gates of the city, even when death and destruction are all you can see, the righteous one will live by his faith. For by his faith he is not proud or upright in himself, but instead trusts God moment by moment. And in doing so, God graciously gives life to those who believe in him. They will live and survive the wrath of God's judgment. For remember, this vision goes beyond the current circumstances of Habakkuk and is actually concerned with final judgment. Those who are faithless, those who are proud and trust in themselves rather than God, are unrighteous and will face the wrath of God's judgment. But those who have faith are counted as righteous 
and will survive God's final judgment and live. This is huge. God tells Habakkuk that regardless of what comes in your life, those who live by faith will live. They will live eternally and be with God. And the reason why they live is ultimately answered in the New Testament by Paul in his letter to the Romans, we'll see in chapter 3. So turn there with me, please. Romans chapter 3. I got all excited, sorry. <laughs> Romans chapter 3. So Paul knew the weight of Habakkuk's vision. He understood the oomph of Habakkuk's vision. He knew how critical it was to salvation. So he actually uses Habakkuk 2.4 as the basis for his letter to the Romans. Paul states in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 The gospel, the good news, which is the power of God to save everyone who believes, is tied all the way back to Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. In his letter, Paul makes it clear, though, that Jew and Gentile alike are all unrighteous through the law. As he says in Romans 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. For as we saw last week in Romans 1, Brandon made it pretty clear that we've all exchanged the glory of God for something else. Paul goes on to say in verse 20 of chapter 3, for no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So through the law, no one is justified or declared righteous. For it actually points out how sinful we are. So how can there be a righteous people who will live? How can Habakkuk find hope? Paul continues on in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed attested by the law and the prophets, hint, hint, Habakkuk. Continuing on in verses 22 through 25, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul shows that the righteousness of God ultimately comes to his people through faith in Jesus Christ, and his atoning sacrifice that paid the penalty of our sins. Through Christ's sacrifice, all who have faith in God pass
past, present, and future are justified freely by his grace. Meaning that all are counted as righteous through Christ covering the debt of our sins. As Paul says regarding Abraham in Romans 4 verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And the same goes for all those who had faith in God without knowing about the coming of Christ. God's crediting of righteousness to each of them is ultimately fulfilled through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So we see through Paul's letter that Habakkuk and other believers of his time will be righteous by faith, not because of anything they did or accomplished, but solely based on living a daily life fully surrendered and trusting in him. And this righteousness is far better than anything we could earn ourselves. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith, a.k.a. the vision that Habakkuk receives all the way back before the coming of the Babylonians. This gift of God truly brings life and hope to Habakkuk and all the future generations. So let's jump back to Habakkuk to finish up chapter 2, verse 5. The rest of the vision says, Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. We see that those who are puffed up and inflated with pride, those who have exchanged the glory and the truth of God for a lie, are never truly at rest. They are never satisfied. With an ever-increasing appetite, they are always seeking after something in creation when their heart is longing for something only the Creator can satisfy. For God alone is the only one who can satisfy the longings of our hearts, the cravings of our souls. Yet in pride, we scorn God. Just look at the Babylonians. They're sweeping through nations, laughing at kings, destroying anyone who stands in their path. They're not looking for God. They're looking for the next nation to conquer, the next thing to try and satisfy themselves with. They are so focused on how great they are, how strong they are, that as it says in chapter 1, verse 11, their strength is their God. And because of that, they are guilty. God assures Habakkuk through this vision that the Babylonians' reign will come to an end. And all who follow in their steps of selfishness and boasting will come to an end. For there is an appointed time in which the proud are without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. 
as the author of Hebrews says in quoting Habakkuk 2.4, as a means of encouragement to persecuted believers at their time. For yet in a very little while, the coming one, God himself, he will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. So as we close today, I know my sermon was nice and short and sweet and to the point. As we close today, Habakkuk's vision begs the question, do you live by faith? Or do you live by your own pride and your own strength like the Babylonians? We've all lived like that, as Paul made clear. No one is righteous, not even one. But have you seen the restlessness and the dissatisfaction that comes from this life? In what ways do you need to repent and find satisfaction in God, the creator, rather than in the things of this world, the creation? Do you need to trust in Christ as the one who saves us from wrath and condemnation through this sacrifice for our sins and gives us life? What about those of us, including myself, that struggle with faith in times of despair, like Habakkuk fearing the onslaught of the Babylonians, or me trying to get this sermon together for today? <laughs> what grounds you in your faith despite your circumstances? I know for me, it's remembering, remembering and memorizing and clinging to the promises of God. So in light of Habakkuk's circumstances, and whatever you guys are currently facing in your own life, I want to read Isaiah 41 verse 10 as an encouragement. If it strikes a chord in your heart, I encourage you to memorize it. I know Tom Meyer was up here at the beginning of the year teaching us how to memorize scripture better. Let's keep working on that. Um, but if this strikes a chord with you, I encourage you to memorize it. It played a pretty darn big role for me this week. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says this, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and just the truth that it speaks into our lives, the hope that it speaks into our lives. Father, as we go through times in our life like Habakkuk when we just don't know what's going on and we're questioning everything, I pray that we can cling to you and to your promises. I pray that you can just point us back to you and the mercy and the grace that you've shown us. Give us faith, Lord. Increase our faith in you when we are weak and unable. Father, we are so grateful for the atoning sacrifice of your son. He made us right with you so that we could be in relationship with you again, God. That we're no longer longing for things of this world to try and satisfy us, God, but we have you, the greatest treasure of all. Father, I pray that we can just remember how good you are. Protect us from the distractions and the things of this world that try to cling to our hearts. Help us be satisfied in you wholly and completely. And may your word just be continuing to transform us so that we can bring you more and more glory each day.
pray all this in your name. Amen. So now is our time to respond. Go ahead and stand.